Please remain standing, if you will, and turn your Bibles to Genesis 19 and verse 23. Genesis 19 and verse 23. If you thought that last week's text was difficult, you will not be disappointed by the difficulty of this week's text or next week's either. Um, we just have a series of difficult, challenging texts in front of us uh, these coming weeks, but this is the Word of God. He's given it to us for our benefit, and so we look at it, we read it, and we consider it uh, today. Genesis chapter 19, verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord remained, or the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up to, up out of, out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may be, may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you take your word and make it effective to instruct our hearts, to build up our faith, to strengthen us according to your will. Lord, use your word through the power of your spirit to convict us of sin and to draw us continually in faith and repentance to you. I pray that if there's anyone who does not know you in faith, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, make your work effective in our lives in this moment today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know if you noticed or not, but there is a parallel. There's several parallels, actually, between this text and that and the account of Noah in Genesis. In both accounts, we see God destroy in judgment. In both accounts, both of these men are called righteous. A lot later, Noah at the time in Genesis. Both called righteous witness this destruction. They witness the judgment of God and both following the witness of the judgment of God succumb to drunken sin following these accounts. You see the parallels there. Both of these are pictures of God's saving grace followed by the return of sinful behavior. 
that scoffs at a holy God. In both of these accounts, these men see this demonstrable and emphatic judgment of God, and yet both men fall headlong into sin. There's a bit of irony there, except for the fact that all of us know this. All of us have experienced this. If you've lived as a believer long at all, you know that sometimes when things seem to be the most spiritually high can be the times when, strangely, temptation shows up at the weirdest, seemingly weirdest time. The judgment of God should always serve as a warning to everyone that we should turn in faith and in repentance. It's a warning to believers and unbelievers alike. It's a warning to us who believe to see God's judgment, to die to sin, to resist the evil one. There's a, there's a dashboard light that goes on, the warning light. You know, hopefully we know this when you're teaching teenagers to drive, you have to teach them this. Or they come home and say, yeah, that light's been gone the dash for three weeks. Not that that's ever happened to me. Uh, it really hasn't, but that's always been one of my big fears. But you have to teach them that that light means something. It's a warning light. It's a caution light. It's designed to draw your attention. Some, like your windshield washer fluid is low, is, is kind of insignificant. You need to add more windshield washer fluid. But if your oil light comes on, what do you need to do? You need to pull over. You need to stop. That needs addressing right away. And when we see the judgment of God, it's like a, a red dashboard light, a warning light for us who are believers. For any who have yet to believe, the judgment of God is a call to fall on His mercy in faith, to recognize that the God who made all things, who holds all things together by the word of His power, has the right to judge, and we will all face Him one day. And so it's a call to believe and trust in Him. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke 17. Hold your place there in Genesis 23 or 19. We'll come right back. But turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. In this passage, Jesus is responding to a question by the Pharisees of what, when the kingdom of God will show up. He's announced the kingdom of heaven. They want to know the details. Of course, we know that the Pharisees were often, they had mixed motives. They were often lo- looking to catch Jesus off guard. And beginning in verse 20, Jesus responds to the Pharisees about when the kingdom of God would come. And answering them, he said, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, or in the midst of you. And then like Jesus sometimes did, he turns from the Pharisees and now says to his disciples something that is is specifically for their instruction. He says, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. 
so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That phrase, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it, is one that many of us know But I don't know that we always remember the context in which Jesus said it, at least in this occasion. This final statement that he says about losing our life is connected not only to material possessions, and that's usually what we think about. We think of not holding on to things so tightly. But it's also in the context of judgment and the facing judgment. And he says these words that that kind of ring in my ears. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife, that she turned back. Back to Genesis in, uh, in chapter 19, verse 23. I want us to remember that. We'll come back to it in just a minute. But in verse 23, we see Lot arrives at Zoar. The sun is up now. He has arrived safely. And it seems that very soon after that, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. If you notice, the narrator Moses is here making something very clear about this event, that this is not a natural disaster. You know, sometimes when we call things natural disasters, even as Christians, we can be tempted to think that they happen by chance. This was Moses wants us to understand very clearly this was not a chance event. This was from the Lord. Look in verse 24. He mentions it twice that it's from the Lord. Verse 25, God overthrew the cities. Verse 29, he states, God destroyed the cities. So God had come and engaged Abraham. Abraham had made his appeal and the Lord had not found ten righteous in the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he responds with definitive justice and judgment. The means of this judgment were sulfur and fire. We don't know if these came out of heaven in some kind of miraculous way or if this was a seismic event that shot everything up and it rained back down. Uh, the point was it was uh, fire and brimstone and it was effective in its means. It was complete. Verse 25 says all the inhabitants, even the ground was destroyed. And here we have to stop and think of the irony of this. This was the land that Lot looked out and saw with his own eyes, and he picked the prime real estate, didn't he? He looked with his eyes, he saw the lush vegetation, and he thought, that's what I want. And he went after it when Abraham offered that they split up for the sake of their herds. This was the land that, to his physical eyes, seemed like his own promised land. And now that which stood before him was nothing but ash, completely destroyed. And then in verse 26, we see that Lot turns back. It says that she was behind Lot. You remember Lot lingered. Remember, he lingered to the point that the angels had to grab him by the hand. And he took the two angels took he and his daughters and his wife out of the city. Lot's wife is lingering even further behind. And they warn them in chapter 19 to not turn back. And this is exactly what Lot's wife did, and it cost her her life. And she became a pillar of salt. She was destroyed by the ash. Moses doesn't give us the motivation of her heart. Why did she turn back? 
We might not understand it from this passage alone, but if we consider what Jesus had to say when he said, remember Lot's wife, we see a little bit more of what was in her heart. Jesus said, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. Lot's wife was not committed to God's sovereign plan to deliver them out of this destruction, but instead wanted her home. She wanted her stuff. She wanted her life. And this is something that all of us can recognize in our, I mean, we identify with rather in our own lives. That when something is taken away, uh, I mean, the Israelites did this with Egypt, right? They got out in the wilderness and think, oh, if we could just go back and have the apricots or, you know, whatever it was that they were thinking about back in the land of Egypt. We, we long for what was there, for what was. She wanted her stuff. She wanted her home. And she was finding her identity in the kingdom of earth rather than in the kingdom of heaven. And it cost her her life. And her destruction then is a warning for us all. Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that we want to hold on to? Where is it that we find our identity and worth? This isn't, you know, unfortunately, this is not something that we achieve. You know, it's... um, it's a battle. There may be something that you overcome uh, in terms of fighting the battle of finding your identity or your worth in something, and then something else emerges that you find your identity and your worth in. It is an ongoing battle in life to look uh, at the things of this world and not become so um, desirous of them. I mean, he says it's eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. What in that list is unnecessary in this life? All of those things are necessary. We all have to eat and drink. Buying and selling is necessary to function in this world. Planting and building, we have to do that to eat and have places to live. These are not bad things in and of themselves. They're actually good things. And yet good things, even good things, can become idols in our heart when we begin to put our hope in them, when we begin to desire those things and they become more important to us. These are the words we need to hear. Remember Lot's wife. Don't allow the things of this world, including the good things of this world, to strangle and to ensnare you. Don't find your confidence in your bank account, in your job or in your career, or in your even in your family. Even in your family. Jesus said to his followers, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Those are hard words. The call to follow Jesus is not a simple, easy call. Are we willing to let goods and kindred go this mortal life also? Know that the promise that Christ offers to us here, that if we don't look back, but if we wholeheartedly follow Him, is this reward of a hundredfold, whatever that means. It's big. There's some reward there that's significant. And more importantly, eternal life. Now, this isn't some kind of works righteousness. This isn't this uh, exchange that we make, that if we do this, that we earn it. But rather, it is a description of what it means to trust Christ that our faith looks like something. This is what it looks like. Our faith is not of just some simple prayer that we prayed years ago and that we walked away from and lived however we want. James tells us that faith without works is what? It's dead. 
Our faith has to look like something. True faith produces fruit. It does look like something. It doesn't look like perfection. We still battle. We still fight. But when we cling completely to Christ and we work out our faith in fear and trembling, it is He who works within us and He is faithful to complete that task that He has started. If you love this world and the things of this world, that love will betray you. Remember Lot's wife. And then in verse 27, we see Abraham emerge, and he looks down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. You kind of have to wonder if he, he went with this expectation to the hilltop, thinking, had there been ten righteous? You know, had, had the cities been spared? But as he came to the hilltop, his eyes didn't betray what had happened. He saw the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Thick, gloomy, ash-filled smoke made it very clear that there had not even been ten righteous. God had destroyed these cities. But verse 29 then reminds us of God's covenant faithfulness to Abraham and in turn toward Lot. It says, God remembered Abraham. In other words, God remembered his covenant promise to Abraham and in turn, Lot was delivered. Not because of any goodness that he had done or any wise choices. We already know Lot for who he is, right? He's he, he's kind of a bumbling idiot. He just keeps making mistakes over and over and over. And yes, Peter calls him righteous, and that gives us hope, especially to those of us who are bumbling idiots. But we look at him and say, you know, this is not a story of finishing well. This is a story of finishing very, very poorly. He has now been saved twice by Abraham, really twice by God using Abraham. If there was anyone who should have had a reason to see God as a mighty Savior and provider, Lot had seen with his own eyes two like incredible demonstrations of God's saving power. And yet here the story takes an even darker turn. While Sodom had been physically destroyed with fire and sulfur, Unfortunately, the heart of Sodom was alive and well in the hearts of Lot and his daughters. From the plain that once held such an appeal for Lot that he chose it as the prime real estate, now he has retreated into the hill country. He doesn't even want to live in the city that he's asked and has been given a concession to go to, Zoar. He retreats even further into a cave. Caves were a place that you went and hid when you were afraid. Caves were a place where people were buried. It was certainly symbolic of death here. And it's interesting, Lot's death is not even recorded. He simply disappears from the pages of the Old Testament. And it's a sad ending. Lot's wife had looked back with her physical eyes to Sodom, and now Lot's daughters look with their physical eyes to the future. How would they survive? The older one says, there's not a man on earth to come into us. This wasn't true, but she came up with this lie or stated this lie as if it were truth. And even though they had seen God's powerful and saving arm and His grace toward them, they failed to look with eyes of faith to what God could do in delivering them. And they took matters into their own hands. Now, Lot is culpable in this, just as Noah was in his own drunkenness. He was still responsible, but even more so than for the act that is recorded here. Lot had failed to protect his daughters. And I'm not just referring to when he offered them up 
in place of the two visitors in the text we looked at last week. Lot has failed his daughters miserably in raising them in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot should not have been there. We saw how there was some lure, some enticement. Every time Lot was mentioned in Genesis, he was just a little closer, inching his way to Sodom until we finally find him buying a house in Sodom. He's living there in the city walls. What was the lure? What was it that drew him there? He had certainly not fleed from sin. Last time we saw that Peter says he was tormented by the wickedness that he saw, that he was troubled in his soul by what he had seen. Why did he not take his family and run? Why didn't he go back to Abraham, the father of our faith? The fruit of raising a family in wicked Sodom was bearing itself out now. The daughters had learned wickedness with their own eyes. They had seen what wine could do. They had learned the ways of deception. And now Lot becomes a victim, in a sense, of his own, uh, I want to say false parenting, but his own failure in parenting, his, his, his own mistake, his own failure to protect his daughters. The heart of Sodom was alive and well within them. Now we have to recognize this as wickedness. It is what it is. We have to remain or or, or recognize that we cannot remain in the face of wickedness and not be affected by it. Um, This is true in our culture. Um, There are some things that we, we, we can't remove ourselves from. This is the world in which we live. But there are a lot of things that we can separate ourselves from, that we can, especially as parents, to look at Lot and recognize that even though he was called righteous by faith, that he was not immune to the wickedness that was around him. And so his daughters become victims of his lax response. This is a warning to all of us as parents. Are we willing to... Walk away from things that are wickedness. Are we willing to turn the TV off? Are we willing to walk out of a movie? Are we willing to filter our own internet for the sake of our children to protect them? I'm always careful when I make lists of things because it's not my job to play the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's quite capable of directing each one of us. We each have the Spirit living in us. And yet, there are things that are very practical that we can do to guard against ourselves. And I think a lot of Christians, myself included, can be, we can be easily numbed to the wickedness that is so prevalent in our culture. We have to flee from it. Well, the fruit of this sinful act then leads to the birth of two sons. One would become the father of the Ammonites and the other the Moabites. Both of these people groups would become thorns in the side of Israel in the coming generations. You know the stories. And yet God does something incredible because this isn't the end of the story. Even though Lot's story ends here in Genesis, the promises of God are not thwarted. His promised Redeemer is still going to come. Isaac is not yet born, but we're getting ever closer to that. And from Isaac would come the line that would bring us Jesus the Messiah. And as we go back and we look at that line, there's something of interest In that line, you remember some key people, like King David, for example. There was another person in the line of promise whose name was Boaz. He was the great-grandfather of King David. 
and he married Ruth, David's great-grandmother, Ruth, in the line of our Savior. And Ruth was a Moabite. Ruth was the offspring in the line of this sinful act. The redemption of our God intervenes and turns the tables. That even horrendous sins, things that we have done, things that we have participated in, things that we have not resisted or fleed from, even these things do not thwart the plans of God. Even out of this wickedness comes the work of our Savior. And there's no better example of this than at the cross when the most wicked act ever occurred, the most unjust act ever occurred. The gospel's power over sin and death is told over and over again through Scripture. We've seen it. We're tracing the lines of this throughout the book of Genesis. And we see that every time it appears that evil is going to triumph, God intervenes. He turns the tables. He triumphs in glorious grace. He overcomes the sins of man whether in judgment or in deliverance. And the story then of Sodom's destruction, Lot's deliverance, and subsequent sin gives us a view of the power of the gospel. David records it in Psalm 85. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. At the cross of our Savior, righteousness and peace did kiss. God did make a way for righteousness to triumph. We can't make sense of this event any more than we could really of last week's event, but let me say this, we can't make sense of sin in any event, even our own sin. Sin is senseless. It is acting senselessly against the perfect law of God. It's why when we sin what's and, and we're convicted, what do we often say to ourselves? What was I thinking? Sin doesn't make sense in God's perfect law. The sins of Lot, though, and his family are not recorded here for us to look down and gawk in horror about how awful they were. But instead, for the sweet conviction of God's Spirit to work in our own hearts and lives. These accounts should lead us to consider our own hearts, our own sin, to become undone. We should lament our lust-filled minds as well as our gossiping tongues. We should repent from our envying hearts and our complacent attitudes. We should turn from our coarse joking as well as our angry outbursts. Fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you and I struggle in, we can make our own list that we should turn from. But don't misunderstand repentance as thinking it is simply quitting sin, like you quit a bad habit. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning from sin, yes, but it is turning to Christ. True repentance is always turning to Christ. And when we turn to Christ, we find that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us all sins, our, our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we turn to Christ, we find that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. When we turn to Christ, we find that in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. When we turn to Christ from our sin, we find in Him the peace that He has made by the blood of His cross. Fight sin? Yes. Flee from temptation? Certainly. But know what you're running to and not just what you're running from. Run to Christ, our all-sufficient Redeemer and friend, our benevolent King who receives us in mercy. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think of this account in Scripture, may we remember, but may we not just remember, may we remember and repent. And may we not just in repentance stop sinning, but may we turn to Christ in faith, knowing that we're prone to wonder. May we instead say, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, this is only a work that you can do in us. And so I pray that your spirit would work even in these moments to draw our minds to things that we need to turn from, to flee from, to separate ourselves from, that we would not become complacent and nudge up and nest against any kind of wickedness, but we would under the conviction of your spirit, know where we need to make definitive cuts to protect not only ourselves, but our families. But Lord, may we not treat it as some kind of moralism that we so easily do. Lord, we're all legalists. It's just, it's what we do. Would you help us not just do that? But would you help us not only flee wickedness, but come to you, Jesus, and lead our children and our friends and our loved ones and our family members to you and show them that they can to taste and see that the Lord is good, that you are good and good to us, that you are with us and will never leave us or separate us, that in you there is no condemnation. Lord, would you help us come to you and to find in Christ our all in all. I pray in his name. Amen.